Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 355 and part two of my conversation with percussionist, educator, steel pan artist, freelancer, and director of percussion studies at Santa Margarita High School in Southern California, Amanda Duncan. We'll get back to her shortly. Had a pretty cool moment to tell you about from last night. This week is the Mizzou International Composers Festival here at the School of Music. And the two major guest composers that are part of this year's festival are Marcus Balter and Tania Leon. Last night, they both gave their composer talk, which I enjoyed. But I will admit that I attended expressly because of the appearance of living legend, Kennedy Center and Pulitzer Prize winner, and seemingly all-around great person, Tanya Leon. I'm not sure what I thought might happen attending the session, but to not only hear both Marcus and Tania talk, but also to hear her talk at length about one of the works she's written in Nora that I really admire, and the process for making that work happen was very cool and informative. And this is particularly important because I talk about her and this piece in my music history class. I chatted with her afterwards, I got a picture taken with her, and I posted it on the interwebs as makes it official that it really happened. It was great. I look forward to hearing more of her works and Marcus's as well as part of the festival later on this week. The summer moves on at light speed, and classes are closer than they may appear, as always. So let's get back to our conversation with Amanda Duncan. Last week on part one, we got to hear about her current job at Santa Margarita Catholic High School, her work with Pan Rocks, growing up in Southern California, and her path to getting to her undergrad. This week, on part two, we'll hear about her years at Cal State Long Beach, her master's time at Northern Illinois, the challenges of getting established as a professional back in California post-college, and our usual close to the podcast. We also had a fun moment that's mentioned, where Amanda unintentionally flexed on camera, which we both found pretty amusing. Of course, what that has to do with an audio podcast, I don't know. All right, let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on June 26th, 2023, and it begins right now. When you're at an undergrad, do you are you still t- taking from Dave, or do you get do you go or get spread around to the other uh, teachers? We got spread around. So the way it worked at uh, Cal State Long Beach was um, so if you were a performance major, so like if you were a BM, you would get one hour of state paid private lessons, okay. and if you were an educate like a music education major or a BA or anything else aside from performance, you would get a half hour. So me being performance, I got an hour. You could either pick one teacher for a full hour or two teachers for a half hour each. And most people, most of the percussion majors would do a half hour with two separate teachers. Um, that was that was typical. And so the way things kind of worked out is you would kind of have like your quote unquote core teacher and then your quote unquote like not accessory teacher, not extra stuff teacher, but like if you were to take like conga lessons with brad dudes that would be like the oh that's the other stuff you're doing but like you would have your quote-unquote core lessons meaning the classical like the snare drum the two mallets the four mallets with dave or dr carney so um so i was at long beach for six years uh for my undergrad and so the first three i i took lessons from dave gerhardt and other teachers so and i so i took drum set lessons with randy drake and then i uh then i took two years so like four semesters of lessons with rainer carroll um if if anyone i know you had rainer on your podcast very recently i listened to his podcast it was it was like it was like a warm it was it was like warm fuzzies listening to rainer talk because he's just an amazing person yeah Uh, but if anyone does not know he was the former principal percussionist of the uh, la phil for a very very long time uh, about almost 30 years i want to say um if not more maybe 35 years um so i took uh, two semesters of timpani lessons, and I, I learned like proper timpani technique from Rainer Carroll. Um, and then the other two semesters were like orchestral excerpts. 
because my first couple of years at Long Beach, I was really orchestral focused. And I like my job was like, I want to focus on this and I want to like win a job with the LA Phil and New York Phil, whoever. Um, Cause again, I wanted to go to, to USC, which was like, oh, oh, hold on. I like, you're like, Oh, the top orchestra or the next top orchestra, whichever of the two, I'm not picky. I like that. My ego was so big. Like you have to understand this. I had such an inflated ego about myself. Like it's, I mean, a t- it's like 1% embarrassing, but 99% absolutely hilarious. Like looking back right now, yeah, that's what I thought at the time, like yeah. my first couple years of my, of college. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. well, and actually it kind of makes sense. Cause like I had been, you know, I, I was a, I was a big fish in a small or, um, well, I had been a big fish in a small pond in high school and this happens to so many people and you go into the big leagues, you go to, you know, to, you, you go to college and you're no longer the big dog anymore. But yeah. inside you think you are and you think you should be, but it's like, no, 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 you, you, you're this little freshman and you need to like literally earn your place. Like you got to earn your stripes. Like people who've been here before you, they've been doing this longer than you. There's a reason you didn't make the top and win ensemble. Cause I got pissed that I only made the second win ensemble. I thought, well, I should be in the top one. It's like, there's grad students who have been working their butts off way longer than you have, yeah. like yeah. who earned this spot. Of course they earned their spot before you. Like, what was I thinking? But I did two years with Dave and uh, Rainer wonderful wonderful years oh my god i loved i i so much i'm so grateful for those two years that i got to study with rainer um because i don't focus on orchestral now like i've never really gone to take auditions that's not my thing anymore um i have my gigs like i have my seasonal gigs like christmas easter like i just played Dvorak eight with an orchestra locally a couple months ago i'm grateful for all of that um but just rainer is just such a gem of a person and he's an amazing teacher you know as is dave yeah lucky there um and then i and then about my third year i uh was continuing with dave and then i started working with brad dutes uh who he is actually he's up in uh, uh washington state now but he for a long time was one of the um like mainstay uh like la percussionists and he was around the scene doing recordings and studio stuff and i i know he's just he's he was around for a very very long time in the scene here and so I learned, uh, you know, congas, basic hand percussion, um, you know, any kind of Latin percussion, frame drums. Um, I learned even a little bit of Irish bones from him. Um, Brazilian percussion, bandero. I started, I learned how to play bandero from him. That was really great. Um, and then I also, then I uh, switched uh, from Dave to uh, Dr. Michael Carney. And uh, with him, I, I spent about three years with him. And he, I mostly learned uh, jazz vibes from him. I, I mean, I learned, uh, to be clear, I mean, because he was director of the whole program. I mean, he was a master of everything. And I one of the best lessons on interpreting Bach I ever had was with him. Um, but I mostly did jazz vibes with him because I also was bitten by the jazz bug very, very hard in my undergrad. And so I, I did a lot, a lot of work with him um, on that and lessons. And then I also did, um, I took lessons with one of our other teachers. I did some West African drumming stuff with him. I mean, because the whole program... Um, the outside of lessons, like we had uh, large ensembles. So like wind ensemble or wind symphony, concert band, whatever it is, or symphony orchestra. And then for percussion, we were to, in order to keep our lessons, um, we were required to be enrolled in three different small ensembles all the time. So we had percussion ensemble, like the typical classical repertoire. Um, we had steel drum orchestra, which is where I first learned how to play steel pan. And we had our world percussion group class, which that basically was like, the first half of each semester was uh, West African drumming, specifically uh, Awe drumming, uh, dancing and singing. And then the second half of the semester was Brazilian drumming. So like um, Carioca style, uh, like Samba, um, Rio style Samba drumming. And then uh, Samba Hege um, from Salvador and like very Olodum style. Um, we learned that as well. That was the whole, like kind of the whole, the whole picture of what the life of a percussion major was like at Long Beach. And it was expected that like you get a very well-rounded training in everything. I mean, the the whole the, the music program at Long Beach State, it's very much an undergraduate focused. I mean, there's master's degrees, but like the core of it is really the undergraduate experience. And that was Dr. Carney's philosophy was that you need to be well-rounded in everything so you can go out and get work and actually be able to do work in this field. Not necessarily that you have to 
master everything and be the 100% best at everything you do, but like 90% so you can get like the job done. And then you specialize in what you want to specialize in. And there you become your master, the master of what you want to focus on. How does Northern Illinois get on your radar? Mm, Great question. So for me, this, it all ties in with steel pan, um, which that's like the great thread connecting all of this, like from my undergrad to my job now that I have today, um, the real, real thread tying it down is steel pan. And at Long Beach State, like I said, I had to be in the steel drum orchestra for every semester. Um, So, and again, I was there for six years. So that's 12 semesters of steel drum orchestra. And at first I wasn't totally in love with the instrument. Like I did it cause I had to, and it was like, it's fun. Um, but I wasn't like spending a lot of time in the practice room kind of woodshedding on it. I was just like, oh, I can read it well enough. Like, okay, fine. Uh, my second year at Long Beach, um, we used to have this Christmas time show uh, called a Caribbean Christmas. That was the concert in the year where Dr. Carney would, and would program more of the classical repertoire. And so we were doing his, uh, he did an arrangement of uh, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy um, from The Nutcracker by Tchaikovsky. And you know the part in the middle where there's the Chalice solo? Mm-hmm. So he had transcribed that and that was intended to be for someone on a tenor pan playing that like solo, like solo, mm-hmm. solo tenor pan. Um, so like and- a, a, like a Liam Teague solo. Like something T could probably play with one mallet, I would I would assume at this point. Yeah, blindfolded, like with his like pinky hand, like pinky finger on his left hand, and like while he's like talking to somebody on the phone, like probably. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, he totally could. Yeah. Um, and it was it wasn't the whole piece; it was just that one little section. It would be like we have like a breakdown and just the tenor solo, and then we come back in, mm-hmm. kind of like a little mini cadenza, um, in a way. Uh, anyway, so he announced in rehearsal, I remember very clearly, um, he was talking about the song and he was going through the form and everything. And then he announced, and now here for the cellist solo, Amanda's going to play the tenor solo. And that was like the first I heard of that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you're, you did, did you do the look around? Like, like, you Amanda or me, Amanda, like, (laughs) And of course, there's only one of me. There's not like there's yes. multiple Amanda's in there. So I was right. like, who else can I be? But no, yes. so yeah, that was when I found out. Like, that's how he told me. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm not getting out of this now. Um, <laughs> when I realized that I was going to be playing completely solo in front of everybody, I had a moment of panic. Of course. Very much. And then I was like, I better get my ass into the practice room and get mm-hmm. the get the work. Yeah. So I, I practiced a lot for that. And... And I had one lesson with Dr. Carney. He wasn't my primary teacher at the time, but I was like, hey, can we just meet so I can go over this with you to make sure like I'm playing it, like like how you intend it to be played, things like that. And so basically through that process, and also it, the, the show went well, it all was great. I, I think I, I felt pretty good about it. So that was the first time I actually really fell in love with Steel Pan. Um, it was that experience of going through that. Um, that kind of changed how I, how I felt about the instrument and how I thought about it. And it just, it really set everything in motion for me. So through undergrad, I had incorporated pan as too much of, especially jazz as much as I could. Um, and so then I realized I wanted to go to grad school. I know we're coming to tie it back to NIU. Um, I realized that I wanted to, I only wanted to go to a school that had a pan program and had a good pan program. I didn't, I didn't want to just do it on the side for fun um, or try to continue it on my own. And so that narrowed it down to two places, um, NIU and University of North Texas. Because I also, obviously I'm going for a percussion degree. I want a strong percussion program as well. It's not just pan. Right. Um, and did you, I'm curious, did you look at West Virginia? I did not because I didn't, I wasn't aware of that school at the time. I, if I, I've thought about that in the years since, and like, had I known about it, I probably would have gone to audition there. Sure. Um, but I think the the way that NIU got on my radar was I, I remember I was in a lesson with Dr. Carney one time and we were, I think it was in like the end of my fourth year or the beginning of my fifth year. Um, and we were chatting about possible grad schools and he was like, you know, you should really look at Northern Illinois university. And I was like, Oh, what, what like, what's that? Like, where's that? And he told me about it, but he, but he mentioned at the time, like, Oh yeah, you would fit in right. Like great right there. He's like, I know Robert Chapel really well. We've been friends for so many years. Like we go back all like way, way back. And Liam Teague said they got a great steel band program. Like you would love it there. And so I was like, well, okay. So I, you know, I made a visit. Um, and 
I can't remember the exact year, but it was whenever my fifth year was at uh, Long Beach. So I made a visit out there and that was the first time I was in DeKalb and I went in January. So it's like cold as you know what out there. It was like snowing. Like, mind you, I'm like born and raised in California. So I'm like this. Yeah. To me, snow was like, oh, I go up, I go up to the mountains. I go up to Big Bear. Yeah. Like to Mammoth. Like that's where I go experience snow. What yeah, is yeah. this like snow in my driveway stuff? Right. Um, so anyways, uh, but that's when I first met uh, Robert and Robert Chapel, And I first met Liam Teague. I think I met Cliff Alexis this, at that trip. I might not have. I can't remember. Um, but I observed a, an NIU steel band rehearsal. Um, and I was just like, oh my God, I want this. This is what I want. Like, I want to be in this band. So then I also went to visit UNT. It was great. I got to take a lesson. I took a lesson with Mark Ford, uh, a marimba lesson, because I think I was learning Northern Lights at the time because I played that for my senior recital. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I was in the middle of working on it. And so I played the opening chorale for him. Uh, yeah. That was all fine. And then I took a, I think I took a lesson with Christopher Dean as well. He seemed so nice. I, I know that he passed away a couple of years ago and I never knew him like beyond that first meeting, but I've only heard amazing things about him. And I always wish I could have, you know, gotten the chance to take a workshop with him or take yeah. a proper lesson with him, you know? So he, yeah. Uh, but he was great, but the school, the school itself was not quite the right fit for me. Um, it was too big. It's a great school. It's an amazing world-class school. But as you know, like we all know that, it's not always about like, is this a good school or a bad school? It's like, what's the right school for me? Yeah. And it was not the right school for me. Um, NIU was the better fit. So that was the only place I applied was NIU. I took a big gamble. And I remember Dave was saying to me, Dave Gerhardt was like, are you sure you don't want to apply to more places? And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. He's like, okay, it's a big gamble, which I knew, but I thought, you know what? This is my goal and this is what I want to do. And so then I auditioned in 2010 spring, I guess. Uh, and I, I got in and I got in and I also, not only did I get in, I was the number one choice. So they were like, we, we, we will offer you, we're going to offer you an assistantship, which for me, that was the other thing I was like thinking while a school, like, you know, you know, new, new England conservatory or Juilliard would be great. I'm like, I can't afford that tuition. Like, Again, I'm trying to like be smart financially and like not take out all these loans. And it's a it's a public university, and I use a public university. So we, I was, you know, with the assistantship, everything else, I was able. We were able to make it work. Um, so I I went, and so that was how I got into uh, NIU. So you you kind of have alluded to this, but what was your aside from uh, aside from the snow and going to you know, scenic DeKalb in, uh, in January. Yes. Um, what was your first, what was your like, welcome to Illinois moment when you moved there? Yes. When I moved there. So, so my dad and I, my dad helped me move out there cause we drove my car. Um, and most everything else we shipped out there, but I mean, we drove across country. We had a road trip out there and I remember getting off, uh, because we had taken the 88 through Iowa going East. Yep. Uh, and we got into Illinois and I remember taking the exit for, I think it's Annie Glidden road is the exit yet to NIU and you go, you go North or South. I can't remember, but I remember getting off the exit and there were just corn stalks like 15 feet high on either side of me on the exit. And I was just like, where am I? What have I done? That was my, that was my welcome to DeKalb moment. Mm. So, yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of culture shock. I'm not going to lie. Um, what about I, how did you, how did you manage the food situation? Uh, I just didn't eat sushi for two years. Um, <laughs> That's good. I, That's one way. I didn't eat sushi for two years. Uh, I budgeted money for, so I could go get my avocados. Um, no, I didn't. I just, I, I had to give up my avocados for a season. Yeah. So hard. Um <laughs> Uh, it was fine. I, it is what it is. You know, I, I, I do enjoy cooking. Um, and so I did a lot, I did a fair amount of cooking when I was there, but, um, you know, you just, you, you acclimate, you go with the flow. I very much learned about seasonal shopping for fruit. Cause in California, we can get any fruit we want year round. It's not a question. Prices, prices, prices fluctuate. They can fluctuate with the markets and whatever's going on in the seasons, but like it's available. So like, 
I had I had to learn pretty quickly, like, oh, oh wait, so I can't really get blueberries in winter. I can't get my straw. What? Okay, I guess I'll guess I'll just get my peaches or whatever or whatever's in season in winter. I don't even remember anymore. What was your assistantship? Well, it was for it was for the percussion department. Uh, so the main duties of my assistantship was I was teaching the music. Uh, sorry, the music ed majors. The I was teaching the percussion methods class to the music education majors, um, and that was actually only my second year. Because my when I first got there, so it was me and Angela Kepley. We were the two like first years, um, and then the grad student a year ahead of us, uh, his name was Matt Solis, and he had the actual assistantship that first year. So he was teaching the methods courses. Um, so what I did as a first year, it was kind of more I was like assisting Matt a little bit in some ways. I would obviously be assisting Robert and be assisting uh, Greg um, Greg Beyer, the other yeah. uh, teacher. Um, with other things, I think there was like, there was like the NIU percussion club. And I think I was like vice president or something like that, or treasurer, some, some, some kind of a role I had. Um, and just generally like assisting around in the, in the, in the program as needed, um, instrument repairs, like doing this thing up there, fixing something in a practice room, you know, things like that. And so then my actual assistantship duties really fully happened my second year. And again, that's where I taught the methods course for music ed majors. That was 8 a.m. I thought I was done with 8 a.m. classes when I went to grad school. And then I was like, God darn it. Nope. Not so much. Not so much. Not so much. And it was like, you know, warm up for real life when you're an actual teacher. Um, but so I taught that. And then I also taught... So at NIU, um, the way that... Robert and Greg uh, structured the program was for for the underclassmen percussion majors. The first two years, you would have your private lessons, and you would also have like group ensemble class, like for um, not they're not methods courses, but they're almost kind of like that. But it's like snare drum class is like freshman year, first semester with Greg Byer. Like let's get our let's all get our hands straightened out. Let's play some Wilcox and let's learn you know molar method, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'd be a two mallet class, four mallet, all the things. And so what I did my also did my second year was I taught a jazz vibraphone course to the sophomores, the sophomore percussion majors. And that was very fun. That was really fun for me to do. President of the percussion club, like basically like anything that Robert or Greg needed help with. I'm the first person to do it. I remember I came back early from winter break for so we could change all the timpani heads on like all the Walter Light timpani and like all the other the Dresden drums they have and all that and things like that. Um, so that was basically the bulk of my assistantship was that. Were you involved with uh, all of the world stuff? Were you doing, was, was Berenbaum going on at that time? It was, and I was not really involved with it. Um, I, I have my own Berenbaum. I had learned how to play uh, in my undergrad because another thing I didn't mention about Long Beach was uh, Dr. Carney, every winter break, because it was like six week break, January uh, time, he would take a group of students down to Brazil um, for two or three weeks to go study uh, Brazilian, you know, samba drumming in Rio and then go for a week in Salvador and learn samba hege. And so like I, I went on those trips twice. I went in 2008 and 2009. That also, those were also life changing for me. Um, that, I mean, as it would be for so many people, but so my first trip was where I bought my, I first bought my Berenbau. So I, I had learned how to play Berenbau back then. I don't know. I guess because I was so interested in Pan, I was so much more into Pan that Berenbau wasn't really too much on my radar. It wasn't kind of my thing. I also don't think that like, because I think Greg, like he can kind of see a student if they would be the right fit for, for the Bauhaus as it is so beautifully named. I love the name. Um, and I was not one of them, which is fine. Cause also they knew I wanted to focus in, in steel pan. In fact, um, I remember my first semester, I, I, try, I, I had a meeting with Liam and Liam Teague and Cliff Alexis to see if it would be possible for me to double major, like do a double master's degree in percussion performance and steel pan performance. Um, but I would have had to stay for two more years. And I was like, Nope, not going to do that. Two more years into Cal. Nope. I'm good. Uh, and so I did as much pan stuff as I could. So I guess I'm saying that because I was so like hyper-focused on pan that I wasn't really, I didn't really have Berenbau on my radar too much. When you're studying with folks like Liam and and Cliff and anyone else where, where you're doing all that much steel pan, what's the structure of lessons in terms of 
getting better, the lit, the arrangements, like what, how how does that kind of tie together? It's a great question. Um, So for, for me, since I was not a steel pan major, like I was not part of the studio, I did not have private lessons with Liam Teague or Cliff. My pan involvement at NIU was as a member of the NIU steel band. Um, and I think my very first semester, uh, my first year, I did I did one semester of extra lessons, uh, extra pan lessons, but it was with the graduate assistant at that time, who was uh, Mia Gormandy, now Dr. Mia Gormandy Benjamin. Um, but she was finishing up, we overlapped by one year, and she was finishing her master's at NIU um, in steel pan performance. Um, and so I took, like, I worked with her for one um, semester, or one was it a year? It might have been one semester. I can't remember if it was one or two semesters, but she was amazing. Um, but aside from Mia, I did not work with Cliff or Liam in lessons. So in so everything I'm about to say is in the context of like the NIU steel band. So the repertoire that they picked was very it was it uh it was very uh there's a lot of variety in the music. We would do, you know, all everything from like, you know, the panorama style arrangements to like the jazz influenced arrangements to the new newer contemporary original music for steel band to classical transcriptions, things like that. One of the biggest things that was a part part of like the culture of the NAU steel band is I, I, I from my perspective, I felt it really like almost like replicated what you would experience in a steel band in Trinidad as much as possible in a university setting. And like it took it like that and took it a step further because there was definitely a sense of like community uh, in the NIU steel band, um, which is really great. And just the expectations of like the level of performance was just so high. And it was it was high at Long Beach, too, but nothing like NIU. Um, It really, really lit a fire under me um, to like really really work hard on my parts and also the music was a lot harder too i mean we were doing like panorama stuff so like and we had re- weekly sectionals um because i was i played tenor in the steel band there um and so we had like i remember we had monday night sectionals for tenors and we were just working and drilling stuff and now that i've been to trinidad and played in panorama like i can say it is very similar to how it's done in trinidad um but it's just the it, the expectation is just so high which is great that's what i wanted the late Dr. Cliff Alexis, I mean, he he brought the experience of having been part of the generation of Trinidadian youths who created the instrument. And there's nothing that you can read about or listen about that can inform you of that experience as much as living it. So some of the best lessons I ever got on pan was when I was a member of the NIU steel band and I heard Cliff tell his stories back in the day of like, you know, just this happening here, this happening here. Um, Cause sometimes he would go off on little tangents, but, and that sounds bad, but it's actually a great thing. Cause like the, there was so many like kernels of wisdom in everything he would say, but he, he had this scar on his bicep and like, I remember him telling us how he got it. And he just, he got so impassioned this one time about telling us like, you know, this is everything that we, you know, we struggled through and now you guys have to take this and you have to take it forth and you got to educate and do teach in the right way. And that greatly influenced how I teach steel band now. Nice. I I would like to point out as this is an audio podcast that uh, Amanda flexed and it was, she's she's been lifting. I just want to say that for the record, she's, I got guns. That's yeah, another- yes, yeah, it was pretty sweet. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> also, a fun fact about me, I'm a gym rat. The other thing to, to, to I want to ask about um, Northern Illinois is, with all of that that you've just talked about, is there also a culture of gigging? Like, like not, not in the, um, the panorama or large-scale group, but is there a culture for members of the group to do like local gigs where they're just like playing in a combo or something like that. Uh, so for, for the steel band, like the steel pan major specifically, I don't want to speak to that because I wasn't a pan major. Um, I would imagine, I'm sure there were, um, I, I, I can't imagine there like someone not trying to pursue a gig opportunity because I need to say that because I know in the percussion studio, yes, 
a lot of us, some students, well, actually not me specifically so much, but a lot of the students were, were gigging outside and working on building those networks, things like that. So I'm sure if the percussion majors did it, the pan majors did it too. So yes, um, I did have a few gigs when I was out there. The thing is, I, for me personally, I always knew I was going to come back to LA. So I did not actively try to pursue freelance work when I was in the Chicago area. Um, and in fact, I came home uh, to California every single break that I got, winter break, spring break, summers, obviously. Um, and I actively pursued trying to get gigs when I was in town. And in fact, I, I have a steady Christmas you know, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, like midnight mass uh, gig. And I have a steady Easter gig. Um, to this day, the music director um, who I work with for that, I first met him in 2010, was on one of those breaks. Like my first Christmas break home from grad school, I first got a Christmas gig, like, and it's continued to this day. So I did, I didn't do a whole lot when I was out there. I, I remember doing like one little random performance of Eighth Blackbird. They had some kind of like thing where they invited like local university students to come play for some event. I don't remember, but. Um, but I, I played with them for a performance and I did some like solo things at like a couple of local museums, things like that. I adjudicated a couple auditions for some things at like Naperville Central High School. Um, me and Angela, actually, Angela Kepley, we, we went out there together, I think, and we, we were working with Ben Walland, I think, at the time. That's when I first met Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that was all in the same like event. I could be mixing up memories here, but like, so I did little things, but again, I was not actively trying to established roots in Chicago. Gotcha. Professionally, at least, right. you know, you, there were a couple of years before you get the, your current job, right. Where you went, you went back to just kind of, so those couple of years, what, how were you quote making it? <laughs> were you able to do so just by doing music stuff or were you taking on literally anything so that you could support yourself? Uh, it's a great question. So kind of yes to all the things. Um, so when I moved, no, back, that's good. That's fine. You've answered yeah. the question. We'll move. No, yeah. no, no, that's okay. Now we're done. Great podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. So I, I, I did kind of a lot of all those things. Um, first off, I'm lucky in that I was able to move back home. So I lived, I lived at home for those couple years. Um, cause didn't have money to move out, obviously. So, you know, where else was I going to go? Uh, my parents, I was very lucky and, and grateful that my parents were like, yeah, you can just, come crash with us. So, um, so they let me do that. And so I, uh, I was lucky in that I got a, uh, front ensemble teching gig, um, almost right when I moved back. Cause there was someone I knew who I went to Long Beach day with. He was now a band director in Dana point, California, which is almost in the Southern tip of orange County, which, so it's almost halfway from LA to San Diego. And, uh, he was like, yeah, I need a new pit tech. And I'm like, um, yes, hire me, please. I'll work. You give me money. I'll do it. And then, short, yeah, shortly thereafter that, uh, I also got uh, hired as a pit tech for another school, uh, Capistrano Valley High School in Mission Viejo, which is not far from where I now teach. Um, again, it was another connection that I had from my undergrad. Uh, so they were just like, the timing was actually very right. I, I got very lucky. So I had those two uh, teching gigs for a bit. And then I think I went back to my old high school, um, Long Beach Poly, and I was coaching there too. So I was at three schools. And so I just kind of hit the ground running and I was just like, let's just go. Let's get to work. Let's get, cause I, I need to make money. <laughs> I got, uh, so I did that and I was also trying to work on gigging and freelancing. And then I, I did work for a little bit, uh, in a restaurant. Um, it was a local, uh, Caribbean restaurant here in Long Beach. It didn't last for very long, uh, but it was kind of perfect because it's like, well, focus was even Trinidadian cuisine. So I was like, well, geez, like this is right up my alley. So, so I worked as a server there for a little bit. That was like maybe six months. Um, it was just something that gave me some extra money, and it was flexible. Uh, obviously, I was the, he was the, uh, the hours really worked well with my teaching job because um, that was all in the evenings. So I would work like the lunch shifts, um, and then nights uh, I would work weekend weeknight or a weekend nights when I wasn't gigging. And also, that's another thing I think everyone should like either work in the food, like the service industry, like retail, or food once in their lives. Because you will gain so much respect. Well, I, well, like after the fact, uh, yeah. not not during those jobs. Oh, oh no, no, no! I mean, you want to talk about misogyny? You're right. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, restaurant industry for sure is. I mean, tell you, oh my god, god. 
yeah, but also we're laughing, but we're it's it's because we're crying inside. Yeah, actually, I, I am. It is pretty awful. I crying yes. waterfalls. Yes, it's laughter because we're diffusing the ugly, we're diffusing the frustrated feelings we have. Yeah, this is how we deal with it. I could go down that hole of the rabbit hole. Um, I'm looking, you know, but I know that'll take another three hours of a podcast. So, um, but what was cool about the restaurant thing is that um, the owner knew that I played pan. So, like when I wasn't on a shift, like or he would like he would let me just do like. Um, lunchtime shifts. So then like on some evenings I can come and play, like just do backing tracks and just like start playing and like for tips and stuff. So that was kind of cool. Um, and then that was like, we brought in some other pan players too. So I kind of started it and some other people came in. Um, this was God 2013. So this is about 10 years ago I was doing this. I did little things here and there. Like I, I remember subbing for somebody at a drum studio somewhere, teaching lessons. I would, I was also teaching private lessons. I would travel to some kids' houses to teach lessons. I taught piano lessons for a kid in Pasadena for once because they paid really well. But at, at a certain point I was like, I'm not, I'm not driving that way anymore for one week of like once a week for a piano lesson. No. Um, people don't know how far Pasadena is from Long Beach. It's about 50 minutes North, no traffic. It's on the opposite side of like downtown LA. It's like where the Rose Bowl is. Yeah. Um, for right every year or so. So like, no, no, thank you. I love Pasadena, but not to teach one five-year-old kid piano for like an hour. No, or a half hour actually for a five-year-old. Uh, yeah. So it was a mix of teaching, at, teaching front ensembles at different schools, gigging as much as I can. And, you know, again, I, I mean, I also started playing some musical theater stuff at that time. Uh, I was up at Rio Hondo college for a bit, doing some things for them. I uh, did some other local stuff and I just, you know, word of mouth, you start getting connections with people and they start offering you more gigs like, Oh, Hey, I have this concert here with this choir. I need percussion. Can you play? And whatnot. So I was doing that for a while and I was going to get to the point where I'm like, I feel like I need a little more study of study of a paycheck. And I had started to apply to a couple of places. I, I remember the last big thing I applied for before I got my high school job that I have now, um, I applied to be the, uh, manager for the Pacific Symphony Youth Orchestra. Um, the Pacific Symphony is like the big uh, symphony in Orange County. It's like one tier down from like the top, the big ones, like the LA Phil, like the next tier down. Yeah, so they have a youth orchestra that's associated with them. And okay. so I, uh, I interviewed to be the manager for that, for that Pacific Symphony Youth Orchestra. Um, and I didn't get it. I think I got like, I got past the first round, but then I didn't get it. And I was, I was actually pretty bummed about that. Um, but it actually ended up being a great thing because it, if I had gotten that job, I don't know if I would have taken the high school gig. So I was doing all that. I got, I got very lucky. It was very much a right place at the right time. Um, and right time in my life too. Cause I was, I was still pretty young when I took that job. I was, I was 28 when I started teaching there. And now I'm going to start my, this was my 10th year. So I had, yeah, it's, it's been a crazy ride. I'm wondering if your your time when you were part-timing everything before, was there a point, like, we all love our folks, hopefully. Was there a time when you're like, you know what, I kind of, like, maybe maybe if I can, if I can get something a little more permanent, I can, my sanity will. <laughs> yes. <Right. laughs> and I'm sure I'm not so many people would say the exact same thing. My, I, I have a I'm very lucky. I have a very great relationship with my parents. Um, but you know, and they, they, my, my parents were very much like, we're always happy to have you here, but we know that you need your own life that you need to move out. Um, you always have a backup, like if you ever need it, but we know that for your own sanity, you need to move out. So they, they were very much in agreement with me. They were, uh, very, they were not trying to be like, Oh, you need to stay home. Like they were not like that to be clear. So, um, so they're very much that too. And also, you know, when, I mean, you're in your late, your mid to late twenties, you want to try to find your footing and get your career going. And I'm not the only person in my generation to be like, I lived at home till I was whatever age, but like, and it's very common now and it's necessary. And also there's nothing wrong with it either. No, um, not at all. And it's, and it's great. It's luckily, and it's a privilege and it's, it, to be able to have that as a part of your life knowing that you could always go back to your parents' house if anything ever happened. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, but also I definitely wanted to get out. <laughs> um, so I had saved up. Yeah. I, I think it took me about two years of working at the school, maybe a year and a half. Uh, Cause I moved out in 2016. That was, that, that was nice. 
And the also thing is I live like, I'm, I'm still in Long Beach. I live 20 minutes from my parents. So like, um, you know, as parents do, they get older and sometimes they need, they need things and it's nice. You know, I can, um, help out if is necessary, you know? So that's, that's kind of a good thing. And also Long, Long Beach is great. Cause like, I often am asked the question, like, why the heck do you still do that commute? Cause it's 43 miles one way, mm. which if you're talking in time, like we do in Southern California, cause we talk, how far is it? And it's always this many minutes, um, without traffic, like I'm going to be leaving soon to go to my camp. Um, and it's going to be without traffic. It's going to be about 45 minutes to get there. And part of what it is, is like, I really love my job. Um, I have such a unique job position. Yeah. I could be wrong. And if anyone out there listening to this podcast is like, actually, you are incorrect. You need like, here's the answer. Please correct me. I think my school is the only high school steel band in Orange County steel band program. Um, Westminster High School might. I know for a while they had an after school program. I don't know if it's still going on or what that is. But as far as I know, we're the only steel band program uh, at the high school level in all of Orange County. And actually, right now um, in Southern California, there are no university steel bands. In Southern California, um, the long, when at Long Beach State folded because um, the the programs uh, changed a lot in the last ten years, and which is not a good or a bad thing. It's just it is what it is. Um, but there's no longer the the Steel Drum Orchestra is no longer a thing there. The Cal State Long Beach, um, and I know Cal State Northridge had one for a long time that folded a while ago. Um, like it was a pre-COVID thing. I want to say like twenty years ago, fifteen. Somebody can correct me on that too. There were some other high schools in the Long Beach area. I know uh, Drew Holt is at Cabrillo High School. Um, Greg Paxson's at Renaissance High School. They have steel bands. Uh, Jason Lee Bruns, he directs the program at Campbell Hall High School up in Studio City. Um, and that's thriving. There's a school in Mission Vista, which is like near Oceanside in the San Diego area that has a program that's great. Um, but again, it's there's not many schools like us. So I'm never leaving. Like I have a pretty sweet gig is all I'm saying. Um, but also I love my life in Long Beach, um, city of Rancho Santa Margarita. There's not a lot to do there. It's very mastered, planned master, you know, like tracked homes, everything's cookie cutter. Everything's the same. Like there's no downtown. Like if you were to say there's a downtown, it's like the strip mall where there's like the Lowe's and the Michaels and like the Luna, Luna grill and like your Starbucks in every corner. And like, uh, it's just. It's just, there's just nothing to do there for, if you, for families. It's great. There's stuff for families, but you know, um, I have no children. So I'm like, I don't, that's that city would serve me no purpose to live there. So I don't want to move closer. That's what I'm always asked. Like, why don't you move closer? I'm like, no, yeah. no, I'm actually fine. This is fine for me and I'm okay. I made peace with my commute and that's just my life. And that's what I do. Cause also I gig up here and I do get gigs up in LA. So it's kind of the halfway point. Yeah. Long beaches, you know? Oh, it works out. Yeah. So uh, finish up with random ask questions. Okay. First question is an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. Well, I'll answer that two ways. I'll answer that with pan, steel pan. Okay. I'll also answer it with percussion. So for steel pan, my biggest issue is it, the instrument just still does not get the respect it deserves. Um, it's not seen as on equal footing as orchestra, as choir, as uh, wind ensemble. It's not seen as, I hate to use the word, and I'm only going to say it because everyone else does, prestigious enough. It's not seen as viable enough and valuable enough. And people think, and by people, I mean audience members, the lay person, think it's just like island stuff, party music, or it's just like, it's just easy. Like, it's just this easy theme all over. And, you know, or like 50 Cent, like uses it in the sample all the time, which they do. And it's great. But it's like, this instrument can do everything else that all the other ensembles can do and do it just as well. And I say that because that translates into, it, it can not, I'm not saying that this is true from necessarily my program, but just thinking across the board, in education in general, it can translate into less funding, less classroom space, less opportunities to, to find chances for fundraising, like things like that. Like it all translates and, and filters down and like gets little tentacles in the, in daily life for steel band directors in ways that, you know, music teachers all over can 
feel the effects of that of not getting enough classroom space because for whatever reason the admin is not supportive but um i feel like it it affects steel band more than other instruments and it just it for me it was it builds down to the respect thing i'm lucky in my school we have a great admin who would supports the arts but it's it, you know it's just it's just a thing that i wish would change and then in percussion um reading just being able to read better and sight read better and for for students i think um because so many students, and I was once in their shoes, really resist the whole sight reading thing. And it's just like, if you just start with a little bit every day, just take it one step at a time, it gets easier. And it's just like learning, like I equate it to if you're learning Mandarin. Side note, I've never learned Mandarin, so I don't have any firsthand experience, but I have students who've taken Mandarin and they've told me, yes, this is true. It's like if you're just learning a new system of like characters, really, to represent sound. That's all learning music is. And the sooner you get over the crux, the easier it becomes. Just like if you're learning Mandarin characters. So those are those. That's my soapbox. Respect and reading. All right. Next question. Uh, we covered a little bit about this, so we will use this to kind of fill in any gaps or anything you want to say on it. But being a being a woman in the world of percussion, and floors floors yours. Ooh, oh my god! Okay, so many thoughts just came into my brain. Oh god! And this would require a whole other podcast episode, I think, to siphon through everything. I will say, I think things are now or is or are as as good as they have ever been. I would say, uh, and this is like, that's a big general blanket statement, but there are still, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sexism and there's a lot, and there's a lot of intersectional stuff happening too. Cause like, you know, when you take into account racism and, uh, you know, just homophobia, transphobia, just all kinds of things. Like it's just, there's still a long way to go. Um, I feel like me personally, um, I'm lucky in that I, I, aside from those stupid boys in high school, um, (laughs) I've not really encountered a whole lot of sexism personally, just for me from other percussionists, um, or pan players or other, you know, musicians. Um, it's more like I encounter it from audience members and it's the whole thing like, Oh, I've never seen a girl play drums or like, Oh, I didn't know women could do this. And it's like, Dude, we're in 2023. Like what, what world is your, like, what world are you in? Um, and it's just the, or it's also that. And it's also the, like, oh, the, Hey, little lady comments, like the very demeaning little tiny isms that in conversation, when like some audience members will speak to you and they use language that is very demeaning to me. And it, it happens musically. It happens non-musically. And I'm also like, I'm lucky in that I I look quite young for my age. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to milk that for as long as I can. Believe me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no. I'm I'm not I'm not mad at all. Believe me. Especially I'm like, forty's not far away for me. Like so. Believe me. I'm going to milk this as long as I can. But it really gets old when I'm spoken to as if I'm like some young kid. It's like, dude, I'm a professional man. Treat me like a professional. Yeah, I, I have so much more I could say about it. Um, I'm just going to leave it at that. Thank you for saying that. But And I always, uh, the thing I always go to on some of the thoughts with either the crowd or the other interactions that you were talking about is Dolly Parton earlier in her career. If you've read anything about her or saying about how like everything was so patronizing I mean, it was to all, uh, basically it was to every woman who was in country music, but like she in particular got it in some just, and it was, it's one of those where you look back and you're like, Dolly Parton is the most accomplished songwriter, like in history. And you're just like, shut up. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. The minute you said Dolly Parton, I was like, yep. Oh my God. Oh my God. 100% 100% agree. Yeah. She's also amazing, by the way. I love Dolly Parton. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, she may be the only the only person that is still, like, loved across all the spectrums. Absolutely beloved. I, oh my God. 
has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh my God. Uh, not that I know. Well, okay. I've never seen it, but also I'm sure it's happened. Cause like students, like I'm sure they've made fun of me tons and I have no idea what they do, but I'm sure they've done it. <laughs> Got it. They probably nailed it. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. What is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Okay. It's actually two things. And when I say impractical, it's just like, I don't have many places to wear them, but like, I like them and I would, I would wear them if I could. Sure, yeah. So I have, I have this pair of neon green pants. Which, are, which are, why do you have a pair of neon green pants? Oh okay, and it goes with the wig too. I have a, I have this neon purple wig, which I look great in. And okay, I bought them. Okay, wonderful, another fabulous percussionist. Um, so her, we had her. She had a birth, uh, birthdays in January. We all were hanging out, so we went in neon. That was the dress code and so i bought some neon green pants and i had a neon green wig and no neon purple wig and it was fabulous there's not many places i can wear them so it's very impractical i got you they're fun but i can't wear them many places <laughs> yeah 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 Fair enough. Yeah. all right uh next question what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie well i don't watch many movies to be honest i'm so chronically far behind on like anything movies or tv shows and pop culture i'm just like i missed the office back in the day and now i'm like well i'm never gonna get caught up now um so i'll say for best movie can it be like i'll say my favorite movie is sure, that's fine. Yeah. so i think all time is et it's my favorite movie all right and that was my favorite movie when I was a kid. So it's kind of like, I, it goes back to my childhood, but that's the one movie I can always turn on, always enjoy it, always cry my eyes out at the end, like second half of the movie. Great movie. Worst movie. Um, again, I'm just so not up to date with films and everything, but I cannot watch horror movies. I can't do it. I just... I cannot do that. or you can't, or just like, it just goes in places. You're like, I don't No, it's like, it's the crazy gore. I just can't do it. Like I'm saying like slasher films, like yeah, yeah. those like suspense is fine. That's not what I'm talking about, but like, yeah, like slashy gore. Like I can't do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right. What's a favorite book? Oh gosh. That's a tough one too. I haven't had much time to read stuff recently. So I'm going to go back with an old classic answer. I think the Harry Potter books mm. are my favorite. Um, well, because I grew up, I grew up with the series. Um, and I remember I went to all the book releases at like Barnes and Noble. And I remember I was actually, um, I did a brief uh, study abroad uh, before my senior year of high school. I did a, because I, I took a lot of Spanish when I was a kid. Um, I did a Spanish language study abroad in Spain uh when book five came out so i was actually i went me and my friends when we were there we'd went to a book release party in madrid for order of the phoenix it was nice. really fun uh, what is the what is the uh what is the spanish translation of that oh crap oh crap oh, this is embarrassing i did so much Spanish and i can't remember it i don't use it any, at, at all anymore so um the order of the phoenix well phoenix f-e-n-i-x is that's how you spell phoenix in spanish I could Google translate it, but okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, but no. So well, actually, at the time we had the Bloomsbury book. They had the UK edition uh, for Europe. Oh. Um, they hadn't done. They hadn't had the translated books out yet. So we did not buy the Spanish language version. We bought the um, the UK the UK edition. So I have that. I have that version as well. So I think just the the Harry Potter books, um, the movies. Eh, I'm okay about them, but the books. Again, that's the thing I can always go back to if I'm ever like. I just need some like comfort food reading. Like I could just read that. What's your, what's your favorite of the, of the seven? I think, I think half blood Prince is my favorite. Yeah. Harry's not as angsty as he was in like book five. God, I wanted Harry to shut up in book five and um, order of the Phoenix. It just, it was like, dude, can you be more drama? Like you're worse than me. Like, come on. Meanwhile, it's, it's Hermione the whole time. Who's got, got her things together. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's she, just the amount of times she saves his ass, like, yeah, 
Harry, like, come on. And also, like, Ron is, like, the ultimate best friend. I, I have such a spot, a soft spot for Ron in the books. I love him so much. He, oh, my God. I was just, I remember thinking when I was, when I was at Gage, I was like, can Ron be my best friend? Like, he's the best. I love him so much. So, yeah, I'd say book six, though, uh, I think is my favorite of the books. Nice. All right. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? That's a great question also. Um, okay. One time I was cooking some rice. This is before I got a rice cooker. And I, um, one, I didn't put enough water in the pot. Two, I got distracted by something. And also, side note, this was one of my mom's pots that she gave me. So I felt really bad. But like I burned through her pot, like the metal. Yeah. I, I ruined her pot. I felt so bad. <laughs> Um, for her, it was one of like her old ones that she was getting rid of. Cause when I moved out, she's like, Oh, here's a bunch of stuff. Like, I don't need it. You can have it. And it was stuff she wanted to get rid of anyways. And so I just, it was her, it was the hand-me-downs of course. Um, so she wasn't totally heartbroken, but she was like, honey. It's honey, rice. How do you mess up rice? <laughs> for the record, I'm, I'm actually a good cook. Like I can cook. I just was, I was distracted. Fair enough. What would you make? What's your signature dish? Ooh, okay. There's this uh this there's this bon appetit recipe that I like. It's a gochujang uh soba noodles that I'll put chicken, I'll like add chicken to it, but it's a really, really good recipe and it's kind of like a staple that I don't make most weeks. And I especially this last year's just been 2023 has been insane. Like I haven't done a whole lot of true cooking. It's been like assembling things to so, like I buy from Trader Joe's and like make a lunch or make dinner. But like when I actually able to cook, cook, like I love to make that. And I can like, I, I, I almost know it by like the back of my hand now. I almost don't need the directions anymore. So I can just like whip it up and like make a whole bunch and it's really good. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. What's something if you meet someone and they say, I like this, whatever this is, like something on the obscure, more obscure level. And you would immediately go, all right, we're good. What would that be for you? Meaning like something I like have knowledge about? Yes. Like not music related? It it could or could not be, but something more obscure. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say like 90s pop music. Oh. Any any bands in particular or artists? Just general, like if you put on a playlist, like any Spotify. Like Sublime shows up and you're like, we're good? Yep. I could I could probably, I could either drum all the parts or I could like, I know the lyrics to everything. I could sing them all. Like any 90s pop. Uh-huh. Like so good. right, runs the gamut. Yeah. I'm like a true nineties child. Like I that was like I'm I'm so I'm such a I'm such a damn millennial. <laughs> like all those memes about elder millennials you see are like the like the 30 AF like Instagram account. It's so it's so embarrassing. It's so me. I'm like, God, why am I <laughs> traveled a lot of places, but where somewhere you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Ooh, uh, Japan. I've never been to Japan because food, the culture, country, like the, the, the outdoors, it just looks, it just seems like such a beautiful country. Plus there's a pan scene there and I want to go check it out. I want to go meet. Is there really? Yeah, there's a pan scene. Uh, so I know a couple of people, well, Yuko Asada, she is, uh, now, uh, the co-director of the NAU Steel Band. Um, she, well, she's from Japan. She is also from WVU, um, oh, okay. well, yeah, she's a WVU alum. Um, and, uh, she was Cliff's protege, um, uh, Cliff Alexis, but I know, I mean, she's from Japan. So I also know, uh, Yuki Nakano, she was at NIU when I was at NIU and I believe she lives in Japan. Now it's like, she's, she moved back. Um, but I played with her at NIU. Also in Trinidad, when I went to play with Silver Stars in Panorama, we were we were side by side in the tenor section in finals. Um, but she's out there, so I know there's a pan scene in Japan. I'd love to go like learn more about it. Got it. Okay, last two questions, Amanda. First one is strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. Oh, <laughs> I know. Okay, so. And there was one time, okay, so back in that, like, especially that two-year period before I got my full-time gig, but also this, I, I had this gig before I left for NIU, so I started it when I was in my undergrad. I played in this educational percussion trio um, for uh, the Orange County Philharmonic Society, and they had this Meet the Musicians program, and I was in this percussion trio, and 
I think there was one time like we were performing or something and like a kid got sick in the back, like a kid puked in the back of the assembly. And it was just like, yeah, you just got to keep going on. But it was just like so audibly cool. sick. Like, you- I mean, I think so. It, I think it was during my bit. Cause we each had our track, like yeah. our the script. And I, and I think it was in the middle of me doing my bit. I think I don't remember. I I, I I I don't know. I don't remember the audio the audio the audio of it, and I'm very glad. I don't need to hear that. Um, I just remember like some being like they're like whisking people, like whisking the kid out in the back. Is like oh, and then I I think I I didn't know it at the time, but later they're like oh yeah, that kid puked. I'm like oh god. Well, I'm glad I didn't hear it. But the show must go on, right? <laughs> so gross. Excellent. All right, last question, Amanda. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Last night when I saw Six, the musical. Oh! Yeah, literally last night. Yeah, I saw... Uh, the, there's, I think there's two tours of the show happening right now. And there's one out on the West Coast. It was just up at Pantages in LA in May or June or May, May, June time. And uh, then it just came down South to Orange County. And I tried to go to the show in Pantages. I had a ticket, but then like just something came up. I had to give my ticket away to a friend. So I was like really bummed. And I've been so busy. I haven't been able to catch the Orange County run. But then I actually had some time last night and I was like, well, it's got to be sold out. But then I checked and I was like, nope. Bought a ticket, went. So worth it. So, so good. Oh my God. I mean, I may or may not have been staring at the band the entire time, but like now all I want to do is I just want to play drums for six. That's all I want to do. That's awesome. Give up all my other obligations, responsibilities. I just want to go on tour for six and just play drums for them. That was such an amazing show. Have you seen it? I haven't. Oh my God. If you get the chance, you have to see it. So good. It's so every, every bit of hype, totally worth it. Such a good show. Such a great time chatting with Amanda over these past couple of episodes. Soon after we chatted, Amanda sent me a list of other great percussionists I should have on future episodes, for which I am incredibly thankful for. Best of luck to Amanda as she continues on with her career in California, and I look forward to hopefully getting to connect with her in person at some point. This week's rave, as expected, has nothing to do with last week's rave, about the book that serves as the basis for the current movie sensation Oppenheimer. Instead, this week's rave is the 2023 film Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, starring, no surprise, Tom Cruise, along with Ving Rhames, Simon Pegg, Isai Morales, Haley Atwell, Rebecca Ferguson, and Vanessa Kirby, among many others, and directed by Christopher McQuarrie, now playing in theaters. I think I've seen all of the Mission Impossible movies at this point, and I think I've seen them all in the theater, actually. I can't say that I thought extremely highly of all of them, but the most recent edition of Mission Impossible is a lot of fun and very much worth your time in a theater. Plot, okay, something called The Entity is an all-knowing AI thing that Isai Morales understands as a villain, And Vanessa Kirby is also part of the villain people. And Rebecca Ferguson returns as an agent. And Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames work alongside Cruz again. Haley Atwell is the new person who's involved in all of this. The plot is unimportant. It's all about action, intrigue, set pieces, cool locales, and of course, all the insane things that Tom Cruise really does to make this movie, which continues true to form. Similar to my rave on the most recent Fast and Furious movie, one of those set pieces is in Rome, so infrastructure damage is high. But it's also a total blast watching an insane car chase and seeing some just unreal views. There's trains, motorcycles, cliffs, parachutes, long setups, longer resolutions, lots of acting, and lots of capital A acting. Atwell is great as an addition to this intellectual property. 
And it's pretty long. It's almost three hours long and just part one. But this all appears to be a really good setup for the next part, which I hope should be out very soon. And, of course, they still do the whole rubber-faced unmasking, who's that person under it, whatever. That's there, too. Anyway, if you want to see a film that's a fun thrill ride, lots of intrigue, and worth your summer theater money, check out Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. You should probably also go see Barbie and Oppenheimer, as those are all seem to be doing well. You'll be glad you did. That's on the Mission Impossible thing. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode of the podcast and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at PeteZambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com, and I'll catch you next time. Until then.